I'm trying to get this thing hooked up to where it'll stay on here. Well, we're having a good time here. It's our first time at this conference, and we're really glad. Everybody having a good time at the conference so far? Let's give to all those that put this together, because, you know, I was in conference ministry. We don't do that so much now, but with Midwest Grace Fellowship in Missouri, it's in, uh, that's where their headquarters are. It's just a small, that's all they do is conferences, Bible con- small Bible conferences like this. And there's a lot of work and a lot of planning and a lot of things that, uh, and what's really is the things you forgot to think of or you didn't even know you should have is the thing that meets the surprise. And a lot of times, you know, we take things for granted and the way things go. But there's a lot of work goes into this and a lot of thought over the time. So we really appreciate those who do that. I think conference ministry is very important. And uh, I'm glad to see conferences like this. This was one of the ones where they started the smaller conferences. And now, you know, and there's other conferences, regional conferences around the country. And that's good for the grace movement to help people to, to get to know each other. And sometimes the things you meet people and you're from your own area, you didn't even know they were around. You didn't know if there was anybody around the whole part of the, your state even that, that understood the grace message and loved it like that. So really thankful for this conference and thankful to be here. Um, <clears throat> Brother Blount's trying to get the special music, and I promise I won't sing. Uh, <laughs> The Bible school I went to, the Bible Institute years ago I went to, their, their motto was preach, pray, sing, or die at a moment's notice. And I changed that preach, pray, die, or sing in that order. And uh, the reason being, I had to give up singing because of illness. It makes people sick. So <laughs> I promise I won't do that. And my wife will vouch for me there. That <laughs> so I do want to mention, uh, if you haven't looked at our display back there for the Brian Bible Institute, uh, I think most of you here yesterday, a few new faces uh, here tonight, but uh, we just have a few handbooks left. If you'd like to get one, take a look at it and see what we have. This is revised. If you have one of our older ones from the Brian Bible Institute, it's out of date. This is a revised edition, May 2002. We keep revising and updating and trying to get all the kinks out and... Uh, so we just have a few back there. Really, it gives, it tells, explains our program. We have some brochures also, uh, some flyers that uh, explain our, our program kind of in a nutshell. And this gives more in-depth explanation of our program and our academics, our prices, our costs, and, and those things. And so that is there. And if you'd like to receive our newsletter, the BBI Bulletin, we have the Institute Update, and we have um, Bible lessons, and we have articles in this as well as uh, other information on the school and uh, announcements of other Bible conferences and that kind of thing that are going on. So um, if you'd like to receive this, it's free of charge. We send it anywhere and we we don't share our mailing list with anyone. So if you're not on the mailing list and you'd like to be on it, we do have a sign up uh, sheet back there. We have a notebook with some sheets in there for your name and address. It's pretty plain. You can tell it's even got a place as address, you know, name, address and those things on it. And please print clearly so we can read it when we uh, get back to, uh, if you write like me, you have to print so, uh, so everybody can read it. So we have those and uh, pick one up. We have plenty of those. We're, we're running low on handbooks and most of the searchlights that we brought with us are gone. So um, that's good, but it's bad that I didn't bring enough, enough or more. <laughs> so when you run out, you always wonder how many you run out by, you know, if it's by one or just enough or one. So 
those, that material is back there. Uh, let's open our Bibles now. And if you, if you have any questions about the Brian Bible Institute and what we're about, and uh, um, ask me. We'll be around tonight, of course, and tomorrow. So uh, you can corner me and ask me questions if you, if you want. And I would like to suggest, uh, and I, was, I come out of Baptist background. All my schooling was Baptist, and I was a Bap- saved under Baptist ministry. And one thing they taught us is you have a group, you take an offering, you know, <laughs> every time. And anybody that comes with a Baptist background knows that's true, isn't it? But um, we're not going to do that for the BBI. But I would like to ask that you would consider the BBI as a possible ministry that you'd, you'd possibly consider supporting. Look at our information, look at our, and, and pray about it. It's all we ask. Uh, we believe that God supports ministry through his people. And uh, it's not for me to tell you what God wants you to do, but you can let the Lord talk to you about what, where to have you put your, your finances. Because we all have, you know, we're, we're called to support those things, whatever ministry it is. And I don't want to take away from your local church because that's a very, very important ministry. But uh, we have three areas the, um, of need for the Brian Bible Institute. One is our scholarship fund. Trying to keep the tuition very low, uh, $75 a credit hour, if you understand, people have gone to college, but sometimes people don't understand what that means. A credit hour means if the semester, if you meet one hour each week for 16 weeks during the semester, that's one credit hour course, that's $75. And a two credit hour would be $150 and so on. Uh, college, if you check the college, prices today, that's low compared to what tuition is in most schools. We have a scholarship fund, though. That's still difficult for most of our students. Most of our students make a big sacrifice. They leave their jobs, uh, move, um, have families, or young people that come and are trying to work and put themselves through school. So we don't get government grants and anything like that. The only scholarship money we get comes from God's people. And we've been able to keep our tuition to half. That's thirty-seven fifty, isn't it? Half of seventy-five, yeah. Thirty-seven fifty. So that's been a big help. So you might keep that in mind. Also, you know, we have the general fund, everything everything costs. Uh, the gospels, the, the the salvation is free, but the pipeline does cost. But it's God that supplies for that. And also we ha- we we're starting a building fund. We started a building fund last year. We haven't got a building well, we have one in view, but we don't know if we're gonna be able to swing it. But we are being crowded out of where we are. And so uh, we need to think about that. If you've ever been in a building program or of a church or anything like that, that's not an easy thing. I look at that as, I, as the executive director. I'm thinking, well, I don't, I don't even want to think about it. I'd like it where we are uh, to bring in Bible society, but they just don't have enough extra room. They rent us extra, their extra space where we have our library and our classrooms and offices. And we're already short on offices in our classroom. Our, our main classroom where we have chapel is getting too small. It's, it's pretty well crowded. And I had to buy six more chairs last week when school, this semester started. And that, we're maxed out how many we can put in there on uh, Thursday nights. And uh, we don't have all 32 students there at one night. By the time we get uh, 20-some students, 22 students on that night, and the instructors that are there, that, our room is full. So um, 
you can get an idea of looking at some of the pictures back there what size it is so we do and one thing we do ask though is that you pray for us and we would really appreciate that that you'd pray for the ministry of the Brian Bible Institute that you'd pray for the instructors and administration and especially for the students it's not easy being a Bible student and anybody that's ever gone to, to uh, Bible college or seminary knows it's not an easy place to be you think when you get there, boy, I'm going to study God's Word all day, and this is going to be a breeze, and I tell you what, uh, there's a challenge when you do that. I don't think the <laughs> devil wants people there to start with. And so it's a challenge for our students. It's also a time of growth, of spiritual growth, and uh, uh, a time of challenge, and a time that a lot of decisions are made in their lives. So keep them in prayer, and we really do appreciate that. Let's open our Bible. We're going to look now at Israel's hope. We, looked at the promises given to Israel, or, or we looked briefly at them uh, last night, and very briefly, because the, the Old Testament is full of promises to Israel. Uh, you read through the book of Isaiah, if it's understood properly, you can see promise after promise after promise. Some of those promises aren't good. God says, you know, if you do this, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, I don't know what your backgrounds are, and uh, I want to share a little bit. When we talk about the law, we'll talk about the law tonight. When I was 12 years old, I was about 12, and I'm pretty sure that was the summer, but I remember going to vacation Bible school very clearly. My parents were both Christians. My father was saved in junior high in a Bible camp, probably about 13 or 14 years old. My mother was saved at 10 years old when she was in Sunday school, and they had a very clear testimony, but they never were in a good church where the well, they, they were in a lot of preaching, but they never were in a church where the gospel was clearly presented consistently, especially after they were adults. Consequently, none of their children were saved as children. That happens in a lot of families. Because they assume, and they're not getting good preaching and good teaching and good challenge, and they assume that their, their children get saved just like they did. Somebody will come along and share, share Christ with them in the way that they were. When I was 12 years old, we went to church all the time. When I was 12 years old, we were in vac I went to vacation Bible school. And that, that summer, you know, they make the little plaster Paris things. And that summer, they made these little plaques that looked like the Ten Commandments. They had the Ten Commandments on them. Maybe some of you had done that or had that experience as children in vacation Bible school. I remember it very clearly. I remember painting those things, you know, pour the plaster in it one day, and the next day it would come out, you know, and you kind of dress them down, and you put the first coat of paint on and, and different things, and by the end of the week, then it's done. And I can very, remember very clearly in a well-meaning teacher that wanted to help children, and I'm not sure, I don't know whether she was saved or not, probably not. But she is telling us that if we wanted to please God, what did we have to do? We had to keep those laws. And that's what I wanted to do. And I thought, well, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep those. By the time I was 15, I knew it was impossible. I'd never be able to do that. And I can remember the night. It was in February. I was 15 years old when I made a decision. And I can remember it, I said it out loud, I said, well, the hell with it. I can't do that. I might as well enjoy life. And I changed my friends. I purposely, young people make serious lifetime decisions. We have to remember that. We don't want to wait till they're 20 and talk to them about the Lord. You don't want to wait till they're 15 because they're already making lifetime decisions. I did. 
I changed my friends, I started drinking and smoking, and I became an orthodox heathen. <laughs> and that's the way I lived my life. I was 36 years old before I heard a clear presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ explain how to be saved. And it was the law. I, I believed the Bible was the word of God. I believed that Jesus Christ died and was buried and rose again. I knew that was a fact. I didn't doubt that. But I doubted there was any way, any hope for me to ever see heaven. And I thought if I was ever getting anything out of this life, it'd be right here what I could get out of it. And I shared last night very briefly, you know, when I got saved, my wife thought I had gone crazy. Because, you know, we, um, we lived the life of the unsaved. I was an iron worker. Uh, my father was an iron worker. And I got into the iron worker apprenticeship program after I got out of the service. And, uh, and that's what I did. I went to college for a while on the GI Bill. But I liked what I did so well. I really enjoyed what I did. I, I liked it. And I was making more money than my college professor. I, I, I uh, was doing that, but I decided to go to school and, you know, and get, a, get a degree. And, and I thought, you know, I'm making more money than my college professors. And I really enjoyed it. So that's, I just quit college and went back, went to work, and I took a few courses here and there. But that's what I did. And I, I really like the work. And sometimes it's dangerous work, and sometimes it's with dangerous men. I was a barroom brawler. I was a drunk. Matter of fact, I met my wife in a bar in Oklahoma. She was a bartender. God can save anybody. And he can change. Yes, he can. And he does, and he can use anybody. Brother Cazonis was sharing that this morning, you know, and it's true. But the law. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 4. You know, we can even become legalistic under grace with the grace message if we're not careful. How we share the wonder of God's grace with others and how we try to force it on them. When I was first saved, boy, I tell you what, I was excited. And the people I had the hardest time dealing with in my own family. Not too long before we were saved, my mother and father had got into a good uh, Bible believer. Well, actually, what happened, they got a new pastor. And uh, he was a man, he was a soul winner. His doctrine wasn't very thick, but he knew about Christ dying for sins and, and being buried and raised from the dead. And that church that he pastored grew from 40 people to 500 people. And it was a rural church because of his evangelism. And boy, he just wouldn't talk to anybody. And I mean, he was sharing Christ. But mom, my mother and father grew more during that time. And they were already just about retirement age when, they, when he uh, started really getting going in that church. And they really grew. So they started growing at the same time. And when we were saved, my wife and I started growing. And it, it really, I'm really glad mom and dad were in a good church at that time. But the legalism, the legalism, and some of you probably experienced that sometimes, even with the grace doctrine, 
we can present it in such a way that it becomes legalism. We start telling people they have to, and, and Pastor Castlander alluded to that some this morning, that when you have to believe everything just exactly the way I do, I've got a better, a higher thing in that. We have to remember that. You have to remember different people come from different backgrounds. They come from different understanding of the Bible. I thought I knew something about the Bible when I was saved. I, I had no idea what I didn't know. <laughs> I knew very little. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 20, starting at verse 23, and some background here. We have the promises made to Abraham. Abraham had, um, had a son named Isaac, and the, and, the co- and the covenant of promise went to him. We had a son named Jacob, and went through him. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We talked about that last night. Ishmael, the covenant doesn't go to him. He got a blessing, but it doesn't go to him. It didn't go to the other sons, the sons of Keturah, the other six sons of Abraham. And uh, we learned that last night, didn't we? Abraham had three wives. He didn't just have two, and he had eight sons. And we have to remember that when we start understanding even history and we start understanding even current events. Uh, because uh, Ishmael's mother was an Egyptian. And he sent his other sons, including Midian and Medan and with the Medes and Midianites and who came from those other sons, he sent them to the east. And, you know, there's, there's still a battle going on, a family feud going on over there. And that's one thing my dad would always say, you know, you get a family feud, you stick your nose in the middle of that, and they'll both turn on you. <laughs> Careful. And uh, anyway, all those things happened, but Abraham's family, Abraham was dead and buried, Isaac was dead and buried, but Jacob and his 12 sons ended up in Egypt. And we all know the story of Joseph, I hope you do, and uh, how God sent Joseph ahead, and he prepared a place for, for Israel to come down there. And we think Jacob's name was changed to Israel. That's where we get the name, the children of Israel. They're Jacob's um, descendants, the 12 sons. Now, we want to remember something. This is interesting to me. I'm not sure that I could say it's 100% of the time, but I know it's most of the time. When you read in the Old Testament, and sometimes you see the prophets, and they'll refer to Israel, they'll say Jacob. Other times they say Israel. Now think back. Some of you have had parents that would do this. My, my mother, my, my full name is William Edward. And they always called me Eddie when I, and that, so I go by Ed because I don't know why, but somehow they didn't use my first name and that's just the way it worked. But mom would always call me Eddie. But when she said William Edward, <laughs> what could I expect? I was in trouble. She was, she was not happy. I, we find that with Jacob. When God refers to him as, Je- as the nation of Israel as Jacob, it's when he is displeased with the nation. And he goes back to the old name, Supplanter, instead of Israel. And you can find that helpful sometimes in looking at the, uh, some of the scriptures in the Old Testament when he talks about... Now we have a problem, too, of understanding that of Israel because after the, the two nations split, or the nation split into two, that's a better way to say it, the ten tribes, the two tribes, Israel and Judah, then you have, sometimes it's refers to Israel, it's just referring to the ten tribes. Other times it's referring to the whole nation. And sometimes, in the, you know, and you'll find that in Isaiah and Jeremiah that way. Sometimes Jeremiah says, the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and he's telling us, he's making sure that we understand there's going to be a, reuni- uh, a reunited nation with them. Israel's hope, what is it? 
let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, starting at verse 23. Now, what's happened is they've gone into Egypt. They were there. They've come out. The, the plagues. God has judged Egypt for the way they've treated them and, and Pharaoh. And, and what we have to understand, when those ten plagues came upon Egypt, each one of those, God was confronting one of their false gods. He was defeating Satan in every one of those. He was showing that the God of Israel was more powerful than the false gods of Egypt, even more powerful than Pharaoh himself. They came out. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because of unbelief. They wouldn't go in. The next generation comes up. That generation has all died except for Joshua and Caleb. And now in the book of Deuteronomy that was written, all the events in Deuteronomy what was written there, uh, there's a few events, but most of it's just uh, history, going back over Israel's history. And Moses talking to them again and, and recommissioning them, so to speak, and, and giving them a law again and, and reminding them of things. That's what's going on. It was written in the last 30 days of Moses' life. Actually, I don't know if you realize this, God actually executed Moses. He called him up on the mountain and said, I'm going to take you home. I'm going to getting you to your fathers but I'm going to let you go up on Mount Pisgah and you can look over the Jordan River and see the promised land but you can't go in you know in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 the Apostle Paul talks about that and all those who died in the wilderness and I used to think that all those that died in the wilderness because, because they refused to go in that they were just lost every one of them but only Joshua and Caleb. Then I realized, thinking about it one day, you know, Moses suffered the same fate. He was not allowed to cross the Jordan and go into the promised land because of disobedience. Because he struck the rock when he was told to speak to it. Aaron suffered the same fate. They're not lost. Moses appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses is going to be in the kingdom. I had to back up and think about that. You know, with Israel, they had, there come a time when they could commit a sin that where individuals could be forgiven and there could be repentance, but the nation had to suffer. And I, I believe, I personally believe, when the Lord Jesus Christ talked about the unpardonable sin, that's what he's talking about. You see, in the law, Israel was told that the children, the sins of the fathers be invested into the children, into the second and the third and even the fourth generation. You thought, I used to think, wow, what in the world is God punishing them for? Daniel is an example of what that means. Israel as a nation, there's a national accountability. God's not doing that today. He's not caught, caught taking national accountability of nations today. It's individuals. Even though he is preserving Israel, don't ever let anybody tell you that God is not doing anything with Israel. They're set aside prophetically, but God is preserving them. And if he wasn't, Satan would destroy him. And you know what happened if Satan could destroy all the seed of Abraham? Stop and think about it. He would defeat God. If all the seed of Abraham was gone and wiped off this earth, he would defeat God because God cannot fulfill those promises he made to Abraham. That's not going to happen. Yes, Israel set aside, but the Apostle Paul says, give no offense to the Jew, to the Gentile, or the church of God. He makes a distinction there. 
he also says that there's, there's a middle wall of perdition has been torn down between the Jew and Gentile, but where is it torn down? It's in Christ that it's torn down. Israel is still a distinct people, and they're recognized by God as that, but they're treated just like anybody else. To come to God, they have to come through Jesus Christ, by, by grace, through faith, and they come on the same plane as a Gentile, and that's, what the, that's where the distinction is, where the problem is, because in all the prophetic things that have to do with Israel, the Jews, I mean, the Jews are always over the Gentiles, and the Gentiles always have to come in under the umbrella of Israel. And we have a lot of scripture. The mystery, the mystery was not that Gentiles would be saved. I can show you scripture after scripture after scripture that show that God always had the Gentiles in view. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah 49, it's very clear the, uh, that in uh, other places in Isaiah, especially Isaiah, it's very clear that God always had the idea that he's going to save the Gentiles and the message would go to them. And we have to remember that. Sometimes, I, sometimes people assume things they said, well, you know, this is what God's doing today, so this is what he has to be doing with Israel. Better ask the scripture and not what we think it should be or how it should be. There's some very specific promises, and the dispensation of grace does not annul them. They are set aside. They are prolonged, but they, they are not annulled. Deuteronomy chapter 4, they're getting ready to pro cross into the promised land. The, the, the group that was there that came out of uh, Egypt that crossed the Red Sea, they're all gone. All those that were uh, 20 years old and older are gone. And uh, now we have their children are grown and they're getting ready to cross into the promised land behind Joshua. No, Moses knows he's not allowed to go. He knows he's going to die before they go. And Moses' uh, strength was not abated. His eyesight was not dim. He was still strong. And yet the Lord says, I'm going uh, to take you home. You know, there's a Baptist church close to where I live when I was raised up on a hill where we're looking at a, a, a small town and they called it Pisgah Baptist Church. So we're overlooking the promised land was the idea when they, when they named it that. That's not a good name. Because Moses wasn't allowed to go in when he got up on Mount Pisgah. So somebody, see sometimes people don't understand what was really going on there. Uh, there's a town in, in Wisconsin called Mount Horeb. Mount Sinai. Why would you want to name the law? <laughs> I don't know. But in this dispensation, it's because of misunderstanding and trying to incorporate things. And the same way that, that I was confused, uh, that church, the people in that church were confused because they were trying to tell people they had to keep the law to be saved. You have to trust in Christ and keep the law. You have to do this and keep the law. Um, and, you, you know, churches, is church membership, it's all kinds of things. But a person can't be saved until their trust is completely and only in Jesus Christ. And as Pastor Kathleen says, it's not how strong our faith is, it's what our faith is placed in. That's the, uh, that's the important thing. I, I really appreciate him saying that because I think we need to really stress that over and over and over and over because a lot of people think it's our faith is something. Our faith is no merit at all. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only one. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 23, he's telling them what's going to happen to them after they get in. Take heed unto yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and made you a graven, and you made a graven image or likeness of the thing which the Lord thy God hath forbidden thee. He says, Take heed of yourselves, lest you go and you forget your covenant with God, which he made with you, and you make a graven image or an idol. It's interesting. 
because they were worth they, they you know there was idols in Egypt and Aaron made them an idol didn't he under Mount Sinai they they said yeah Moses will we'll keep that law go up go up and talk to God and and uh, while he was gone they, they made an idol they blew it he says don't you do that for the Lord thy God is a consuming fire even a jealous God and he has a righteous jealousy it's different than ours, isn't it? Also, it's interesting to me, the Apostle Paul said that covetousness, covetousness is idolatry. What is covetousness when we practice it? It's when we start, we start wanting things and looking at things, and that becomes our priority. You know what covetousness is? Uh, i got to have that. And it starts consuming you, and you start putting your resources toward it or whatever it might be. Whether You know, there's, God doesn't say we can't use our money and use it wisely and, and different things, but covetousness was something, well, I just got to have that. And, uh, yeah, we can, we, can, we can have an idol. We don't even have to have something right there in front of us. It can be the desire for recognition. It can be, it can be all kinds of things. It's our motive to give glory to God or bring satisfaction to our own selfish desires. That's sin is selfishness, what it is. Verse 25, when thou shalt beget children and children's children, okay, when you're going to have kids and you have grandkids and so on, and ye shall have remained long in the land and have shall corrupt yourselves and make a graven image in the likeness of anything and shall do evil in the sight of the Lord thy God to provoke him to anger. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you shall soon utterly perish from off the land wherein to... Ye go over Jordan to possess it. Ye shall not prolong your days upon it, but shall utterly be destroyed. And the Lord shall scatter you among the nations, and you shall be left few in number among the heathen, whither the Lord shall lead you. And there ye shall serve gods and work and the work of men's hands, wood and stone, whether which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But if from thence Thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, that shall find him. And if thou seek him with all thy heart and with all thy soul, then thou art in, when thou art in tribulation, and all these things are come upon thee, even in the latter days, if thou turn to the Lord thy God, and shalt be obedient unto his voice, for the Lord thy God is a merciful God, he will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor... Forget the covenant of thy fathers, which ye swear unto them. What is he saying here? He says, you know what? You're going to go into that land, you're going to fail. You're going to try to keep the law, and you're going to forget the covenant, and you're going to build idols. You know, that's exactly what they did over and over. And the story of Judges is up and down, up and down. One generation failed, and then they, they were in bondage, and then the next to the nations around them, or the nations right there in the country, the Philippines, the Philistines had a lot to do with that. And then they would they would go to war, and uh, God would live up a raise up a deliverer when they would cry out to God. The next generation would, and they'd cry out to God, and He'd send the deliverer. We call a judge, and actually it'd be a savior, uh, not the same as Christ, but He would come as a national savior, and He would. He would give them the victory, and then the next generation in a cycle would go over and over again until finally they had a king and, and so on and became a nation, and finally they had David. So uh, this is the background to the first coming of Jesus Christ. And he said, you'd be spread into the nations that they would, uh, 
uh, be put out of the land. And you find that throughout the, the prophets about them being put out of the land. Now in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, and for time's sake I'm not going to turn there, 2 Samuel 7, 7, 8, or 8 through 17, where he talks that Daniel, or excuse me, David said, you know what, I'm going to build a house for the Lord. I, I'm sitting here in a palace. He was established as the king. They were still using the tabernacle. And uh, out of fact, the ark and the tabernacle weren't in the same place. And, and he's saying, you know, I'm going to build a uh, uh, house. He said, I'm sitting in this palace. I'm going to build, build God a palace. Basically what he's saying, a temple. And uh, instead of a tabernacle, that tent. And Nathan the prophet said, go ahead and do it. But the Lord spoke to Nathan that night. And he said, no, go back and tell David don't do that. The next day, he'll say, David, don't do that. And the Lord told David, he says, you're a man of blood. I'm not going to let you do that. But I am going to do something. I'm going to build you a house. Now, he wasn't talking about a palace. He was talking about a lineage. He says, you're going to be a dynasty. And the rule of Israel will go down through you. And you will always have a man, a son, sitting on the throne. In 605 B.C., Daniel or um, David was about a thousand BC approximately. In 605 BC, Israel came into uh, the, uh, Judah. The northern nation had been taken captive already by the Assyrians. Judah came under the domination of the Babylonians. I believe that's when the times of the Gentiles started. Not the fullness of the Gentiles, that's another thing. The times of the Gentiles begin then. And Israel was dominated, or Judah, Jerusalem. Jerusalem was where God picked to build his house. That's his place. Still is. And he's going to rebuild the temple there someday. That's still going on. And then in 598, there was a second wave of, uh, of deportations from Judah. And then in 586... Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, they destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, they destroyed everything because they kept raising up. Jeremiah had a message. His message was Judah, just surrender. His message to the king, don't rise up, don't rebel against Babylon. God has brought this on us, on Judah. And they had false prophets said, no, they're not going to. We can rise up. We can defeat him. We have, the, we have the house of God here. We have the temple. We have Jehovah on our side. At the same time, these same men were practicing idolatry right in the temple. Ezekiel was given a vision. <laughs> I know it's interesting. He says he's lifting me up by the head of my hair. <laughs> he took me to, from uh, Babylon to Jerusalem and showed him what was going on in the temple. But Ezekiel had an unpopular message too. He was there and took in the second wave in 589 B.C. and he was down there in uh, 598 B.C. and he was there in the uh, uh, area of Babylon and uh, he was telling them, you know what? The Lord says, let your sons and daughters get married, build houses, start, start families, start your business, just settle in because you're not going home right away. Jeremiah was back saying, you know, it's going to be 70 years. You're not going back till then. That wasn't a popular message. Jeremiah really caught it. Uh, 
Ezekiel didn't seem to have as bad a time as Jeremiah, but Jeremiah, nobody wanted to hear what he had to say. Daniel was taken in the first wave from Babylon. When Nebuchadnezzar took, he took a lot of the uh, princes, it says. And we have the ones we know their names, Daniel and uh, I, I can't get their, their Jewish name, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, they were, uh, that's their names that were given to them by the Babylonians. Those four men, we, we know their names, we know some history about them. It tells us that they were put in care of the chief of the eunuchs. Daniel was probably 17 years old. These men were probably close to the same age. What it means is they were castrated and trained to be servants of the king in the uh, government. You think Daniel didn't suffer for the sins of his nation? They weren't for his. That's how the, the sins of the nation, the sins of the fathers invested into the children of the first and second and third generation because the whole nation would suffer. And it's a principle that's still true today. Do the people of a nation suffer for the, for the failures of the, or whatever you might call, of the, of the government leaders? Sure they do. Now in the New Covenant, Ezekiel 18 talks about that. He's in uh, Jeremiah, and I can't think where it is in Jeremiah, but I know Jeremiah talks about it too, that um, no longer will the teeth of the children be set on age because of the sins of the fathers. Because every man will die for his own sin in the kingdom. You see, the kingdom, we'll talk more about that in the morning, but the kingdom is not like we picture it a lot of times, what it's going to be like. It's going to be a kingdom on earth with Jesus Christ ruling, but for the unbeliever, it's not going to be an easy place to live because they don't like righteousness. Daniel suffered for those things. Let's uh, look at Acts chapter 7. Now, this is the background. We're talking about the first coming of Jesus Christ and Israel's hope. And what time do we have to get out of here? Whenever I'm done, I never get done. See, I'm getting spoiled at school because, see, I can just mark the place and quit. We come back next night and pick up, and you go on. And, and uh, it's a little different, actually, teaching. Time to keep back and remember to teach instead of preach. And, um, but we do that. But Acts chapter 7, verses 47 through 51. This is a long time later, after Daniel and those guys. And, you know, we, we know that uh, after the Medes, the Persians and the Medes conquered the Babylonians, they allowed Zerubbabel to go back and rebuild the temple. Later, Ezra came back 50-some, 60-some years later and uh, brought, brought a revival there again. And then Nehemiah came back and uh, rebuilt the walls of the, of the city of Jerusalem. And all those things were going on. And we usually call it the, the uh, exile and the post-exile or the the captivity and the return stage. And there's some things, some interesting things about that we're going to talk about. But here we have Stephen given a prophecy during the time, uh, shortly after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and uh, after Pentecost and Peter's offer of the kingdom to Israel. And verse 47 said, But Solomon built him a house, talking about God. You know, he had a tabernacle. He said, but Solomon built him a house. How bet the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. 
What house will ye build me, saith the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these? God is not contained in temples. Now, why was he telling this? And he, you know, if you look at Stephen's address, he's given a history of Israel. We have to remember that. He talked about what they did in the past and their rebellion, and he brings them up to this point. Because at his time, those Jews still were saying, but we have the temple. We're God's people. We're God's chosen people. God was not going to do that, though. Now, remember, they're under foreign domination. They lied to the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, they said, we've never been servants to anyone. And yet they were under Rome, the heel of Rome at that very time. And then Stephen says, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one of whom ye have now been now the betrayers and murderers. He's the one that foretold his coming. Now he came and you murdered him. Who have received the law by the disposition of angels have not kept it. Because you haven't kept the law, you're stiff-necked, you're just... You know, they knew the history of Israel. You look at what he, is, he just got through talking about the history of Israel, Israel's, Israel's failures and their captivity and all these different things that went on. And they saying, you stiff-necked, you're just like them. He was... Um, he hadn't take, taken that course. Who's that course, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People? You know, <laughs> Dale Carnegie... Uh, not Dale. Who's that course? Dale. Um, yeah, Dale Carnegie course. You know, that's telling. Maybe they he had read. No, no, it wasn't. I'll tell my age if I say that one anyway. So I'm not gonna go back. Nobody knows who I'm talking about. Lemmy Bruce and his course on uh, how to alienate everybody and, and make enemies. Nobody knows remembers who Lenny Bruce was. <laughs> he remembers, and uh, he was a uh, Don Rickles except he was very harsh. And uh, I think he died of drugs or something, didn't he? Yeah. But um, he was out the, He was one of those shock guys. They call him a shock jock today, when the, the way they act and talk. But no, he was telling them exactly what God, this is what Stephen was saying, exactly what God wanted them to know. And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed him with their teeth. You know, and they took him out and stoned him. And the Apostle Paul was there at the time and you know, going along with that. Let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 7. We're looking at the background. We're looking at when Christ came. Uh, or this is after Christ came and after he, the death, burial, and resurrection he had left. In Jeremiah chapter 7, we find something also. I'm going to try to bring this all together. Last night we tried to lay a groundwork and Sometimes it's difficult to do because there's so much and we've got to get all these ends tied together. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 21, and we're talking about punishment for Israel, Judah's rebellion. Um, and Jeremiah was right there prophesying when Nebuchadnezzar was about to... Now, Jeremiah had a long ministry too, and they did a lot of things. They threw him in prison, they threw him in a, in a cistern. Uh, they uh, tried to get rid of him, but the Lord preserved him through that. Verse 21, Jeremiah chapter 7. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, put burnt offerings unto your sacrifices and eat flesh. For I spake not unto your fathers, nor commanded them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this they saying commanded I them, saying, 
obey my voice and I will be your God and you should be my people and walk in all my ways and I've commanded you and it may be well unto you. He says burnt offerings and sacrifices weren't the, weren't the thing. They were there. They were part of it. But they didn't get those to Mount Sinai after they came out. But he said that wasn't the real issue. The issue is I want you to obey me. That's what he was saying. But they hearkened not, nor inclined their ear, but walked in the counsels and in the imagination of their evil heart and went backward and not forward. Since that day, since the day your fathers came forth out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have even sent to you all my servants and prophets daily rising up early and sending them. Look at that, what he says. Now, this is metaphor here. He said, I got up early every day and I sent prophets to you to warn you. Now, this has been going on. We're talking close to about, about 600 B.C. I believe the Exodus took place in 1445 B.C. is the date I would take. There's a difference, there's a difference of opinion on when that date was. That's when the date I believe it was, about 1440 B.C. So we have a difference there from 1440 B.C., 44, 45 B.C. to about 600. So um, seven, 800 years had gone by. And he says, you know what? You haven't changed much. You haven't changed much. And we can understand that today. The Apostle Paul makes it very clear. Man hasn't changed yet today either. Not from the Garden of Eden. Man hasn't changed. And he can't change himself. He says, daily rising up, he's sending the prophets. Verse 26, yet they hearken not unto me, nor inclined their ear, but hardened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. You know what? Stephen... 600 years later is saying, you did worse than they did. And he's saying, you guys did worse than they did. And so it's, it's a, they were getting worse all the time. Chapter 29 of Jeremiah. I mean, this is just a, trying to look at what, what the charges against them were. And, and Stephen's looking back at this and says, you're just like them. They knew these, those Pharisees and those Sadducees that were listening to Stephen that day, they knew what he was talking about. They related to these prophecies and many more that, you know, we're probably, I'm, I'm ignorant of anyway, maybe you know about them. But there's a lot in here. I don't have a full grasp of this, but they had a lot better grasp of these things than we do. 29 verse 10. For thus saith the Lord that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word to you in causing you to return to this place. Actually, he wrote this letter and sent it to the, to the captives in Babylon. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. You know, the God, when God brings judgment and pronounces judgment, he always offers hope, too. It is. He offered, offered, offered to Israel. You read Romans 1.18 through 3.20, and I tell you what, if, if Romans stopped right there, if 321 through chapter 4 wasn't there, that would be a pretty sad passage of Scripture. Because it ends up saying there will no flesh be justified by the law, by the law of the knowledge of sin. Every mouth will be stopped. But he says, but now the righteousness apart from the law is made. Isn't that wonderful? But Israel didn't understand that. They didn't understand that at all. Verse 12, 
Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you, and I will seek, and ye, and ye shall seek me, and find me, and ye shall search for me with all your heart, and I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity, and I will gather you from all the nations, from whether the places whether I have driven you, saith the Lord, and I will bring you again into the place where I have caused you to be carried away captive. They were carried away captive in the Babylonian captivity. He said, I'm going to bring you back. Let's look at Daniel chapter 9. And I've got to go quickly. Uh, Daniel chapter 9. This was a letter written by Jeremiah sent to the captives in Babylon, early in the captivity. Now, we have Daniel in the first year of Darius, the son of Osiris, the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, Daniel 9.1. So we have this after the 70 years, and, or close to the 70 years are up. And anyway, the, the Medes have taken over. Daniel's been there 70, the whole captivity. And verse 2 says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of years, he was reading, by the books, the number of years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of, Jer of Jerusalem. So what book was he reading particularly? Pretty plain, isn't it? 70 years later, he got this letter out. This is what Jeremiah told us, and thus saith the Lord. Daniel was also a prophet. And he says, you know what? We're going to go back. Israel's hope is always centered to going back. Jerusalem. He says, I set my face in the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplication and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. What did we just read in Jeremiah? That when Israel would do what? They would seek God through prayer. So that's, what, that's what Daniel's doing. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession, verse 4 says, and said, O Lord, and great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments, we have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and thy judgments. And he goes on down there. He, he, he's, he's praying a re, prayer of, re, of repentance of the nation. And it wasn't for his personal sin, although he confessed. Now, Daniel was a sinner, just like everybody else. Even though the Bible doesn't show us the blemishes there, he does some of them. I mean, Daniel was a, kind of a special guy in that sense. And you read down through that. This is in verse 13. As it is written in the law of Moses, what we saw in Deuteronomy, all this evil has come upon us. Yet made we not our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquity and understand thy truth. But let's jump over to um, verse 20. Verse 16, I'm going to stop at a verse or two. I mean, it's, it, it's, a, not, it's a study to go into this, this, this chapter. This chapter. Verse 16, o, God, o Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, let thy anger and thy fury be turned away from thy city Jerusalem, thy holy mountain, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach that all are about us. You see how the sins of the fathers have come on and all the nation is suffering. They're all carried away captivity or killed and all kinds of things have gone on and they've been dispersed. The Assyrians had taken the northern tribes and they had indifference to the Babylonians. They just took them all over the place. 
Uh, the Babylonians seem to have taken most of those from Judah to Babylon, and uh, they left it desolate. The Syrians had brought other people back in and repopulated the northern part. That's where we end up with the Samaritans, and uh, because they were half, half uh, they were partly Jew and partly from some of these other other nations that the Syrians brought in there. And uh, what he's saying in verse 20, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin, the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, and the holy mountain is Zion, and that's Jerusalem, and that's the Temple Mount. That's what the holy mountain is. It's Jerusalem. When you find Zion, marching on to Zion, we have the uh, a song even, uh, marching on to Zion. It's taken from the Psalms. And what was Israel talking about? Marching back to Zion from captivity. Going back to Jerusalem, the holy mountain of God. The, a lot of times the capital city is pictured as a mountain in the Old Testament. Talking about the mountain of Samaria. Talking about the, uh, the capital of the northern tribes which came to be known as Samaria because sometimes because Samaria was the capital there. Yea, while I was speaking in prayer, verse 21 says, And the man Gabriel, whom I have seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, test me about the time of the evening oblation, time of the evening prayer. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I came to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore understand the matter and consider the vision. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon the holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. The 70 weeks of Daniel, we usually call it in the prophecy. It plays a big part in the book of Revelation. He says, no, Daniel, I'm sorry. God's answered his prayer. Oh, yeah, the, the part of Israel went back. Going along after this, the Zerubbabel led some 40-some thousand people, almost 50,000 people back to rebuild the temple. But he says the kingdom is not going to be restored. There has never been a king from the time that Zedekiah was taken off the throne in Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. And Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple destroyed at that time. He took Zedekiah. Zedekiah tried to escape. He captured him. Uh, they took him before Nebuchadnezzar, his generals, when they captured him. They took his sons and made him watch as they killed his sons and then blinded him. Took him, to took him to Babylon and put him in prison. That was the last king of Israel or Judah. The only time that Israel has really had any real sovereignty, even close, it was more like it is now, the time of the Maccabees, or the, um, oh, there's another name they call them, but it was the Maccabee time, the rebellion. But even then, the only reason they had any sovereignty over the nation, the Jews really had any sovereignty over the nation, was because the rest of the Gentiles were busy fighting each other, and that was a very short period of time. What we have in Israel today, there's Jewish people there, but they're not really in control, are they? That's not the return. You see, I used to think, when I said the Babylonian captivity was over, that all the Judah all went back. That's not true. <coughs> Only a remnant ever went back. Israel was dispersed at that time by the Assyrians earlier and by the Babylonians, and they have never returned. 
there's more Jews in this country. There's only, anybody know how many the population of Israel is, the Jewish population? Or let's say Israel itself, it's the whole population of the nation. 30 million. Pardon? 30 million. He says 30, anybody? About three, less than five, three and a half, four, something like that, it varies. That's probably about the number of Jews, and maybe it's Palestinians that are residents there, there but, and actually some citizens. How many, how many Jews are in New York City? Two million. Two million. And probably in New York, all of New York, there's probably more Jews living than there are in Israel. And in Russia and in Europe, and in South America, and other large cities around this world. They've never been returned, and they never will, till the Lord Jesus Christ gathers them back. When Jesus Christ came back, it was the hope of regathering that you find in the Old Testament prophecies. Jeremiah says there's a time coming when I'm going to gather them back and bring them back into the land. Let's look at, I'll get ahead of myself, let's look at Jeremiah 16. Um, Interesting passage of scripture. Verse 14, I believe. Uh, and he's talking, well, let's look at, da, da, da. I'm going to start at verse 13. Uh, I'm going to look at verse 12. I can't go back all the way because we can go back to the first of the book. But I like to get the context. I like to look at a lot of scripture because that's how we have to understand it. But when we get in a message like this, it's hard to do. Verse 12. And ye have done worse than your... We heard that before, haven't we? We have done worse than your fathers. And behold, ye walk after, uh, every one after the imagination of the evil heart, that they may not hearken unto me. Therefore I will cast you out of this land to a land that ye know not, neither ye nor your fathers. And there shall ye serve other gods. Day and night will I not show you favor. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord that it shall no more be said, the Lord liveth, that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But the Lord liveth, that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north, and from all the lands where he hath driven them, and I will bring them again into their land, and give it to their fathers. Behold, I will send for many fishers, saith the Lord, and they shall fish them. And after will I send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them, and every mountain and every hill, and out of the holes of the rocks. You know what? In Matthew, we read, here comes Lord Jesus Christ come walking down there, and here's Zebedee and his sons in the boat. He says, you guys, come with me. I'll make you fish as a man. And they got out and left. Old Zebedee was sitting there mending the nets by himself now. And they went and they followed him. Later, they asked. They became part of the Twelve in chapter 19 when the rich young ruler came and says, what will we... I, what can I have to have eternal life? What will I do? And he says, you know, keep the law. Well, I did that. Sell all you have and give it to the poor. He said, well, we'll see you later. And left because he had many riches. Just a few verses later, Peter says, the question came up, you know, well, how can anybody be saved? He says, well, <laughs> with man they can't, but with God all things are possible. And Peter asked the question, Lord, we've left all to follow you. What will we get? Anybody know the answer to that without turning there? Matthew 19. Peter asked the question. We well, left all. Yes. 
12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel and the kingdom. You see, Israel is still dispersed. They've never been. That, that Babylonian was just a remnant that went back. That's all that's ever returned. That's all that's ever lived in the promised land since the time that Nebuchadnezzar conquered them. Israel's hope today, yet today, is to be returned to that land. Now, you have a lot of, you know, when you get into Judaism, you have different uh, differences just like you do in Christianity. You've got liberals and you've got conservatives and you've got practicing Jew Jews. They call themselves observant Jews. And you have uh, the ascetic Jews and then you have uh, um, the reformed Jews. And there's a lot of differences in what they believe. But one of the things they do in the Passover, and we're going to talk about the Passover tomorrow morning and Israel in the kingdom. But one of the things they do in the Passover, they got an extra um, seat sitting there, an extra place and a drink and a uh, place setting for Elijah. And they send the youngest son out the end, look out the door, did Elijah come? He comes back and says, no. And they're looking for Elijah to come because he's the forerunner of the Messiah. And they'll say at the end of the thing, this year in New York or Milwaukee or Moscow or wherever they are, but next year in Jerusalem. That's Israel's hope. That land is still theirs. I had to do some rethinking when I realized they've been scattered. They've never been returned. A lot of our commentaries and things about talk after the return, only a remnant ever returned. A large synagogue, a large Jewish presence was in Babylon for years and years, and there's still a Jewish presence there, even with all the, the Muslim and things like that, but the large Jewish um, presence was there for years. Matter of fact, that's where the Talmud took shape, was in the great synagogue in Babylon. That's interesting to me. You know what the Talmud is. That's their commentary by all their rabbis over the years, and they put that above the scriptures. When they want to know what the scriptures mean, they look at the Talmud. Um, it wasn't in the form that it is today. And I, think, I think, if I remember right, about 500 AD, 500, 600 AD, when it finally came in kind of the form it is now. I'm not sure what they're, what they're doing with that. But even in the days of Christ, it had come a long ways. And I believe that's what the Lord Jesus Christ was talking about. He says, the commandments of men make the word of God in none effect. Israel has a hope. They are God's people. They are God's chosen people. God loves them. And one day, he's going to call the body of Christ out of this world. And he's going to pick up where he left off with them. And they're going to go through the great tribulation period. They're going to go through a time of suffering. We'll talk about that tomorrow. This pre, uh, right before the, the kingdom comes of this earth. But he's going to save them out of it. And he's going to gather those Jews from all over the world. There has never been a time that we can say that these prophecies have been fulfilled. Some have tried. Some have said the regathering in 48, that was the fulfillment of prophecy, and then the rapture had to be right around the corner. It wasn't. Let's turn to Jeremiah. We're in Jeremiah 16, and we'll look at uh, the last part of this, because I want to pick up on it tomorrow. But in Jeremiah chapter 23, we'll stop at 23. 
There's so much in the book of Jeremiah that's just amazing. Jeremiah 23. Uh, I'm going to start at verse 1. Woe be unto the pastors, destroy and scatter the sheep of my pastor, saith the Lord. Ezekiel chapter 34, I tell you who that is, that's Israel. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel against the pastors that feed my sheep, that's the leaders that feed my people. You have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doing, saith the Lord. And you can connect this with Matthew 23, where the Lord brings woe, woe, woe. Eight woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees and the leaders. This was particular at his time, but in Matthew 23, he was doing the same thing to the leaders of that day. And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and will bring them again into their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. And I will set up shepherds over them which will feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. That is not the situation in Israel today. Peace and safety is not there, is it? Verse 5, Behold, the days cometh, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch. Who is that? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days, Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. Israel and Judah. Israel and Judah, that's all 12 tribes. God's going to gather them back and there'll be distinction there. We'll, they'll know who they are and those that are on the earth at that time will know who they are too. And there'll be 12 men sitting on 12 thrones ruling the 12 tribes. In this name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Therefore behold the days come, saith the Lord, that they shall no more say, the Lord liveth, which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But the Lord liveth, which brought up and led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country and from all the countries where I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. That has never happened. It's still, it's still future. And that is just as sure as we're standing here that'll take place. The salvation of Israel, the regathering into the land, is just as sure as our salvation and our heavenly hope. You know, the question was asked about the blood of the new covenant and how it applies. I want to say something about that. That's what it's based on. Christ died once for the sins of the world. And it's the same blood that he shed for the sins of every man and woman that ratified the new covenant with Israel. You can't escape it. If you try to escape it, that that was the blood of the... He only died once. He was only one Christ that ever lived. There's only one Son of God that ever came and gave his life on Calvary for the sins of people, men or women. You know, when those Israelites go into that land, when they're saved, and when eternity comes at the end of the kingdom, we go into the, uh, the eternal state, those people will be just as saved as we are. Sometimes I think that grace people think we have a greater salvation than Israel does. Nobody has a greater salvation than any other because it's all done by the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a heavenly hope. They have an earthly hope. But they'll be just as saved. They'll have a relationship with the living God. 
And that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And we need to understand that. That there's only one Christ, one Savior. And that we're in a unique time, a, a parenthesis in which God has set aside all those prophetic things that we find in the Old Testament and we find in the Gospels and the early Acts and, and we find in the Kingdom Epistles. That's what I call the, the Epistles, Hebrews through, through Jude and even the book of Revelation that we find there. That we have a distinct and a wonderful message of grace that God is sending out salvation, making it available to Jew and Gentile without distinction to a whole world. You know, in, Je in Romans chapter 3, the, uh, Paul, the Lord Jesus Christ, through the Apostle Paul, says that Israel blasphemed God. You know what that, what, what that means? What was Israel supposed to do? They were to be a witness and a testimony to the Gentiles that the Gentiles would glorify God, that they would turn back to him, but instead because of Israel's behavior. The Gentiles blasphemed God. In Romans chapter 9, we told that they had the service of God. In Romans chapter 12, who has the service of God today? I beseech you, brethren, by the mercy of God, you give your body the living sacrifice. And what kind of service is it? Reasonable service, isn't it? We have the service of God. You know, when the church fails, when the church looks like the world, when the church acts like the world, when the church fails to stand for the, for the truth of the word of God and for the word rightly divided, it causes the Gentiles to blaspheme God. It causes the Jews to blaspheme God, too. They're going to blaspheme God and reject him, but let's not give them any excuses by our behavior. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who thought on a robbery to be equal with God, but humbled himself, emptied himself, and came in the form of a servant, being found in the form of the likeness of man, in the likeness of man, he was obedient to the Father, even to death. And you know what? He asked us, have that same mind. <coughs> Ministry is service. It's meeting needs. And the greatest need in this world is salvation. It is. We need to build up each other as the body of Christ. Israel has a wonderful hope. But it's not available. People try to mix that in with our hope today, and I know that's confusing. If we know and understand that message... We need to make it known. It's not always easy because there's a lot of opposition to this message. Satan hates the grace of God. He hates mankind and he has a particular hate for, for Israel and he with a more intense hate than we can imagine, he hates the body of Christ because we are his greatest threat. And when we just say we'll serve God, we're willing to bow our hearts and our minds before the Lord to serve him, to do what he wants. Satan doesn't like it because then people start getting saved and people start growing. And we're in a spiritual warfare. And I, I you know, we could say a lot, and I'm going I'm to close. I just think it's a wonderful, wonderful hope that we have we don't hope in the kingdom on earth. We're not trying to keep the law. The law has been kept by the Lord Jesus Christ, hasn't it?
He's already done it for us. And not only that, he's paid for our sins. And the, and the Apostle Paul tells in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if one died for all, all should live for who? For the one who died for us. I don't know of any other message. There isn't any other message. Jesus Christ is the only message. There is no hope aside of Christ. He is the Savior. He's God come in the flesh to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for giving us a record of your dealings with Israel, with mankind to the past, and, and for the wonderful hope that you've promised Israel, for a hope they still have. They're scattered among the nations still. But one day you will gather them back. And the Lord Jesus Christ will rule as King of kings and Lord of lords over them. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we have today in this dispensation to share what a wonderful message of grace to the lost world. There is a coming judgment, and we know that. There's a terrible time going to come upon this earth, and thank you, Lord, that you saved us from this wrath to come. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the privilege of serving you. Not because we're constrained, not because we're under law, but simply because you've given us the privilege to make the choice to serve you, to give you our lives. That we can become living sacrifices on your behalf, carrying a message to a lost and dark world. Lord, use each of us as individual members of the body of Christ as we learn to edify each other and build up each other that the body be more efficient in sharing our wonderful message with the lost world. We give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' wonderful and thrilling name. Amen.